Hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about the history of the Emirate of Afghanistan. And there have been multiple Emirates of Afghanistan in the country's history, but this one was the one that existed specifically in 1929 and 1929 only. Hopefully, this episode will be even longer than the last one, which was still pretty short. I am going to be doing my best in the future to get my episodes within the 25 to 35 minute range, but I haven't yet figured out how much writing equals how much recording. So let's set the stage. The year is 1928, and Afghanistan as we now know it is a kingdom called the Kingdom of Afghanistan. The reigning king was a man named Amanullah Khan, and he was not a popular guy. He had set forth a series of reforms that would have greatly westernized Afghanistan, including the improved status of women, uh, removing segregation and hijab mandates, and even enforcing western dress in certain parts of Kabul. These reforms might not sound so bad to us today, but you've got to keep in mind that this was 1928, and a lot of the men in Afghanistan were not so keen on easily giving up their higher position in the social ladder. In fact, the men of the Shinwari tribe, which was a Pashtun ethnic group in the Afghan countryside, were so upset that on November 14th, they besieged the city of Jalalabad. The Shinwari published a manifesto which contained a series of complaints against Amanullah and his reforms, and it's worth mentioning that over half of these complaints were directly about the bettering status of women. Amanullah seems to have not taken this quite as seriously as he should, because he sent only a small contingent of armed men to Jalalabad to relieve the siege, although they were eventually stopped 20 miles outside of the city and destroyed by the Shinwari tribesmen. It does seem that Amanullah learned his lesson, because on December 3rd, he sent out his brother-in-law, a man by the name of Ali Ahmad Khan, with a considerable force of regular military men, militiamen, and money in order to put down the rebellion. He also sent out a call to tribes in the area to aid the government, and as a result, armed men began converging on Jalalabad from across the countryside. This, however, would prove to be an overcorrection on Amanullah's part. Ali Ahmad was able to make it to Jalalabad before any of the armed tribes did, where he promptly made peace with the Shinwari, but the problem was now that there were multiple roving bands of armed men scouring the countryside looking to make money. One of these bands of armed men were called the Sakawists. They were led by a man named Habibullah Kalakani, who was ethnically Tajik, but he was very active in the Afghan countryside. Nine days after Ali Ahmad had managed to make peace with the Shinwari, Kalakani and his men captured Jabal al-Siraj, which was a small city just north of Kabul. Within the city itself, the Sakawists discovered military weaponry and funding, which was going to spell disaster pretty quickly for Amanullah's government. Within two days, Kalakani had reached the gates of Kabul with an army of 2,000 men. But please don't picture a grand conquering army, because that's not what they were. Only 200 of them were armed with rifles, despite the fact that they had just captured military weaponry, 
The rest were armed with melee weapons like axes and hammers. Kalakani very clearly had designs on overthrowing Amanula, but the Sakawists adhered to Sharia law, which strictly forbid the deposition of an emir. So here they did a bit of clever rules lawyering, and they elevated Kalakani as their emir in opposition to Amanula, who was therefore a usurper. Now that they could somehow argue their actions would be safe under Islamic law, they moved in on the city. Also, I'm not sure if I said this before, but Kabul is the capital of Afghanistan. It, it is today, and it was back then as well. So, for the next 11 days, combat spread pretty quickly throughout the streets of Kabul. Now, you may be thinking, it took 11 days for the army of the national capital to put down an insurrection by 200 men with rifles and 1,800 men with hammers, but it really did. You see, Amanullah's royal officers had a problem with stealing rations from their troops, and as a result, most of the foot soldiers within the capital actually mutinied. They didn't join Kalakani, though. They just sort of hung out while the royal cavalry and personal guard of the king took care of the situation themselves. Amanula then ordered that the army's weapons be confiscated and distributed to the male civilian populace of the city. But, as I said before, Amanula was not a popular guy, and the citizen body as a whole refused to fight for him. And, just to make the situation even worse for the king... A number of the tribes from the siege of Jalalabad, who had never gotten to get their payday, also mutinied as they had been stationed in the city, and they even went so far as to fire on the royal troops. And so it almost seems like a stroke of luck that on Christmas Day 1928, a bomb was dropped near Kalakani's position, and shrapnel from the explosion lodged itself into his shoulder which forced him to retreat from the city 12 miles north to a fort that he held. Doing his best to seize this opportunity, Amanullah and his men followed and began to besiege the fort. And for 19 days, the army of the Kingdom of Afghanistan besieged Kalakani's hideout, but to no avail, until January 13, 1929, when Amanullah called off the siege. Amanullah's failure to deal with this insurrection in a timely and appropriate manner was such an embarrassment that he actually abdicated his throne and handed it to his brother Anayatullah Khan before Amanullah fled into British India. One of Anayatullah's first acts as king was to send a peace envoy to Kalakani, but he seems to have chosen the wrong man for the job because this peace envoy pretty much immediately defected. Upon arrival, the envoy informed Kalakani that Anayatullah's succession to the throne had been illegal under Sharia law because of the time of year in which his brother had stepped down and he had stepped up. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me, and I don't know what Sharia law they are citing. I'm not an expert in Islamic law, and if anyone knows what they're talking about, please let me know because I would really appreciate it. Regardless of what we understand, though, it seems that Kalakani understood it and agreed with it, because he and 28 armed men stormed Kabul out of their hiding place inside the fort, and forced an Ayatollah to barricade himself in the royal palace. And I think this just goes to show how ineffective and dire the situation was for the Kingdom of Afghanistan at this point. They had bands of armed men roving the countryside, 
and it took 29 armed men to force the king to hide within his palace. If all it takes is 30 angry people to seriously threaten the existence of your government, I think a lot of the countries on earth today would have a serious problem on their hands. But to the Kingdom of Afghanistan, this was a serious problem. It was so serious that two days later, on January 16th, royal officials began to declare their allegiance to Kalakani instead of to Anayatullah. So the next day, Anayatullah surrendered, abdicated, and was allowed to leave Kabul with his family unharmed. His reign was a whopping three days long. And so it was that on January 17, 1929, Habibullah Kalakani stepped up to the throne, was proclaimed emir of all Afghanistan, and officially began the Emirate of Afghanistan. Now, regardless of what his Sakwists had told him when they were first outside the city gates of Kabul, Kalakani was a usurper, and he knew it. So one of his very first acts as emir was to move the royal treasury out of Kabul for fear of a Khan loyalist rebuttal. And that was the situation when word finally reached Ali Ahmad, who was still in Jalalabad. All of this had happened so quickly that the man who was sent to put down the initial rebellion was still at the site of the initial rebellion when Kalakani was proclaimed king. Now, if you had been paying really close attention earlier, you may remember that Ali Ahmad's surname was Khan, and he was a member of the formerly reigning royal dynasty. So he proclaimed himself king in opposition to Kalakani. And so King Ali Ahmad began to march with 2,000 men against King Kalakani. They stopped in the Jagdalak Pass, which is a mountain pass between Jalalabad and Kabul, because it would offer them a good defensive position in order to wait for more allied tribes to join his cause. One of the tribes that heeded his call was the Kugyani tribe, but on February 9th, 1929, their leader defected from Ali Ahmad to Kalakani and captured Ahmad in the process. Now that the two former kings and his opposition king were removed from the picture, Kalakani was able to sit pretty on his throne for over a month without any serious trouble. During this month, however, something did happen that Kalakani perhaps should have paid more attention to. On March 8th, Mohammed Nadir Shah, who at the time was just Nadir Khan, entered the country of Afghanistan. He was a distant relative of Amanullah and Inayatullah, and he had his own ideas on the throne. We're not going to hear much more from Mohammed Nadir Shah until a little bit later, but keep in mind that from this point forward, he is quietly and slowly building his own network in opposition to Kalakani. So on March 13th, Kalakani's month off ended in fire when a rebellion was announced in the Wardak region. In response, the emir sent Field Marshal Abd al-Wakal out at the head of 3,000 men, which included 400 royal cavalry, in order to put down the resistance. When the field marshal arrived, the Wardaks agreed to end their rebellion and swear loyalty to Kalakani as long as the following four demands were met. 1. Their local fortress was guaranteed protection from looting by the new government. 2. They could keep their weapons. 3. 
the population of the Wardock region was immune to looting, and four, the army that was now headed to their location could only purchase food and supplies. They could not loot, forage, or hunt. Alwakal agreed to these terms and sent the majority of his army through the mountain passes in order to formalize the agreement. But on the way, it seems that a soldier fired at a bird, which triggered a massive Wardok ambush in which most of the army was destroyed. In fact, all but 20 of the cavalry died. This is just my speculation, but it would seem pretty clear to me that when that soldier fired at that bird, it was enough of a violation to the Wardocks in order to justify them abandoning peace talks altogether. Now that peace was altogether off the table, the people of the surrounding regions rallied to the Wardock banner, and they took their rebellion to within 13 miles of Kabul, which was a 33-mile journey on which they defeated multiple of Kalakani's contingents. It was now March 22nd, and the capital itself stood under threat, so Kalakani marched out in order to join his troops in person, and they met the rebellion in a small village named Kutal-e-Sheikh, where they battled and the rebellion was briefly beaten. Kalakani's troops chased the rebels back to the city of Maiden, which was a Wardok stronghold, and they placed the city under siege for three days until they were finally able to take it. Unfortunately, they were not able to follow up on this success because they had suffered massive casualties throughout the process. And here's another little aside. It was somewhere around this time, in late March, that both Amanullah and his brother Anayatullah returned from exile and began leading small anti-Sakawist resistance forces. And this is yet another thing that Kalakani did not pay much attention to at the time, or so it seems. And that is because things in Maiden were far from over. On March 27th, Kalakani left his brother Hamid in charge of a small occupying force inside the city. But the very next day, anti-Sakawist tribesmen in the Maiden area ambushed Hamid's position, inflicting a lot of casualties and stealing multiple siege weapons, although they were initially unable to dislodge the emir's brother. That is, of course, until two days later when the tribesmen returned in force and actually sent Hamid and the majority of his forces fleeing from the city, save for very few men that were holed up in a nearby fort. So, Kalakani himself returned to the city on March 31st and was able to recapture it, but that did not mean that everything was going to be hunky-dory from there on out. On April 2nd, a mere two days later, a conspiracy plot was set into motion. It seems that one of the resistance forces had made a deal with tribal militias across the country, in which the militias would attack Sakoist strongholds in the countryside, while the main rebel force headed straight for Kabul. On the same day, an independent uprising of Hazara tribesmen erupted in Gurband, which is 50 miles northwest of the capital, and Kalakani sent out a general by the name of Said Hussein with 12,000 men in order to put it down. 12,000 men should give an indication that this was no small rebellion. And this is where a little bit of soap opera drama mixes into our story. One of the men leading the rebellion was by the name of Atta Muhammad. 
and Atta Muhammad's fiance had been taken by Hussein, Kalakani's general, as a wife in the years prior. So Muhammad had sworn to kill Hussein for this. Fighting was back and forth between these two mortal enemies until April 20th, when Hussein ambushed Atta Muhammad's forces and killed the man that he had wronged years prior. In order to add insult to injury, Atta Muhammad's brother was simultaneously hanged in the capital. However, Hussein killing Atta Muhammad did not mean that the Hazara rebellion was over. On May 10th, a Hazara militia ambushed Hussein's 12,000 men in a mountain pass and actually managed to rout them in the process. Hussein fled for two days, during which time he was wounded somehow, and he eventually holed himself up and was placed under siege by the Hazaras. Hussein had trapped himself on May 12th, and on May 13th, 900 of his men were captured in Gurband. The next day, 2,000 more of his men were defeated and then disarmed, which brings us to the 15th, when he decided to make some offensive maneuvers. Hussein managed to break out of his besieged status, but he was stopped pretty quickly by the Hazaras and forced to dig in again a day later. Seeing now that he was not very likely to take the rebel territory, Hussein and his men turned back for Kabul, but along the way they managed to secure most, if not all, of the roads to and from the rebel territory for Kalakani. Now, the Hazara Rebellion is not yet over, but we are going to put a pin in it right there and rewind the clocks a little bit. The story of Hussein that I just told you took almost two months, but the rest of the country was not at a standstill during that time. So we're going to bring it back to April 3rd. For the week of April 3rd to April 9th, Kalakani led his army through the northern parts of rebel-held territory, but along the way they suffered multiple small defeats. Normally, a handful of small defeats would not have been the end of the world, and it wouldn't have been here either if at the same time Nadir Shah had not been slowly advancing through the Afghan countryside, taking small cities and defeating Kalakani's troops about a half a dozen times as he went. Now that Nadir Shah had been making maneuvers within the country for over a month, Kalakani could no longer ignore him. And by April 12th, Kalakani had been preparing to make maneuvers against Nadir Shah himself, but he began to hear rumors that the major city of Ghazni was surrounded by anti-Sakawist rebels, which was a call that he couldn't ignore. So he began to march his men south. But he didn't make it to Ghazni in time, because on April 16th, it fell to the resistance, and Kalakani's forces were defeated in a battle in a small village just outside the city at the same time. Kalakani's men then began to scramble, scouring the countryside for a way to simultaneously recapture Ghazni, as well as secure their route back to Kabul. On April 21st, some of Kalakani's men left Kabul in order to help with the situation, but their timing was ill-prepared because on April 24th, Nadir had reached Agujan, which was a small village a mere 22 miles to the south of Kabul. This put Kalakani in a very difficult position because he was now made aware that the leader of the resistance that had captured Ghazni 
was none other than Amanullah himself, his old rival. Thus, retaking Ghazni would have been a bit personal for Kalakani, but his new rival Nadir Shah was now positioned between him and his capital. So now Kalakani was staring down two major rebel armies, which is not typically a position that an emir wants to be in. But on April 26th, Amanullah for some reason gave up Ghazni and left the city. Thus, Kalakani was able to retake Ghazni until April 30th, when Amanullah and his men returned in order to continue the fighting. I'm not really sure what Amanullah's thought process was here. He held Ghazni, which was a major, major city, and then he just gave it up, but then four days later he decided he didn't want to give it up, so he returned. This may be part of the reason why Amanullah was so unpopular in the first place. He's very indecisive. But that's just my speculation. So now Kalakani's men were under siege in Ghazni, while his capital was simultaneously threatened, made even worse by the fact that Nadir Khan had begun closing road and waterways to and from the capital. In response, Kalakani ordered more men out of the capital and into the countryside in order to set up defensive positions against Nadir Khan's maneuvers. But keep in mind, this is now the second or third time that Kalakani had emptied men out of the capital, which should be a little bit of foreshadowing. And then things got even worse for Kalakani on May 8th, when Nadir's brother Hashim, not to be confused with Kalakani's own brother Hamid, united multiple tribes in the east of the country against Kalakani, raising an armed rebellion of 40,000 troops. It seems that some of these tribes felt pretty good about their odds, because on May 11th they made a try for the capital itself, but they were stopped by none other than the Shinwari, who had launched the rebellion that caused all of this mayhem in the first place. In the meantime, Kalakani had been able to break the siege and go on the offensive against Amanullah's troops until May 19th when they themselves were placed under siege 80 miles north of Kandahar, which is a major, major city 300 miles to the southwest of Kabul. For four days, Amanullah was under siege until May 23rd when he eventually fled back into British India once again leaving his brother to inherit a really bad situation. I'm sure that Inayatullah had a very high opinion of his brother at this point. After once again defeating Inayatullah, Kalakani was able to make his way back to Kabul, where he met up with Hussein, and this is the part where the two branches of our story unite. It was now June 27th, and the Hazara rebellion that Hussein had failed to put down began to spill out of the mountain passes and slowly make their way towards Kabul. It's worth knowing that it's very unlikely that the Hazaras actually wanted to take a pass at Kabul. They were most likely just looking to secure their own area, as this was a tribal rebellion, not a political one like Amanullah or Nadir's. But to Kalakani, this did not matter. A threat was a threat. On June 28th, the emir's forces ambushed and defeated the Hazaras outside of the mountain pass, taking the pass for themselves as a consequence. 
Following up on this victory, Kalakani sent out a general to crush the ongoing Hazara revolt in their home province, which he succeeded in for about six days before he was wounded and forced to retreat, which reopened all of the regained territory to the Hazaras to reoccupy. It was now July 17th, and Kalakani had wasted three weeks fighting the Hazaras with absolutely nothing to show for it. They held all of their original territory, as well as the mountain pass and the area of land just outside of it. Kalakani should have counted his blessings, though, because the Hazaras stopped there, just in time for a massive battle to erupt between Kalakani's men and Nadir Khan himself just outside the gates of Kabul. Pinned against the walls of the city, Kalakani ended up winning by confiscating all cars and horses that he could find in the capital in order to move reinforcements to and from the front a lot faster than Nadir could. The emir then chased Nadir all the way to the Pakistani border, and the situation for Kalakani did not look so bad save for the ongoing Hazar rebellion, which had stagnated for the moment, until August 26th when the Hazaras took up the offensive once again. But hey, July 18th till August 26th is not bad. That was over a month that Kalakani had without any major battles, any major skirmishes, rebellions, revolts, whatever. And even now, with Nadir Khan in such a weak position, all Kalakani had to worry about was this Hazara rebellion for almost a full month until September 23rd. Because it was on September 23rd that Nadir Khan revealed that he was in a much stronger position than Kalakani would have thought, and a massive uprising in that previously mentioned major city of Kandahar forced Kalakani's men out of the city. Simultaneously, pro-Nadir forces all around the country began moving in on Kabul. On October 3rd, pro-Nadir forces defeated armed men that were commanded by Kalakani himself in the town of Muhammad Aga, which was well within the striking zone of Kabul. The tide had turned very quickly for Kalakani. Within two months, he went from dealing with one major rebellion and a little bit of skirmishing on the border to holding pretty much just Kabul itself. On October 9th, 1929, fighting between Kalakani and Nadir Shah broke out in the streets of Kabul, and the Arg itself was besieged. The Arg is the national palace, sort of like the Afghan White House. Kalakani was holed up in the palace for four days until October 13th, when Mohammad Nadir Shah managed to break the defenses and enter the Arg. He and his men captured Kalakani and his higher-ups alive, and therefore it is October 13th of 1929 that marks the end of the Emirate of Afghanistan. It wasn't the end of Kalakani, though. He managed to live for a whopping 19 more days until he, his brother, and nine of his inner circle were lined up against the west wall of the Arg and shot. And so there you have it. The Emirate of Afghanistan was no more, and the Kingdom of Afghanistan was re-established. So let's take a brief moment to talk about why this country has been forgotten by history. Although Kalakani had initially been able to defeat not one but two kings of Afghanistan, and then install himself on the throne, he never actually held the country in its entirety. 
He had only just begun to secure the countryside outside of Kabul when the first rebellions began to break out, and so he was never able to hold more than about a third of Afghanistan at any one time. And I think that has a lot to do with why his government is not paid very much attention. I think largely the Emirate of Afghanistan is seen as a failed rebellion in and of itself, since it was bookmarked on both sides by the Kingdom of Afghanistan, ruled by the same Shah dynasty. And I think largely it was a failed rebellion. There were only a handful of days throughout Kalakani's six months on the throne that he wasn't being actively opposed by members of the Shah dynasty operating within the country. When usurpers fail like this, they're pretty much just written off as a failure. But that's okay with me because it allows me to make more episodes of this podcast. Speaking of more episodes of this podcast, thank you for listening, and I will see you again next week when we talk about I Don't Know What Yet.